The following audio is from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information about Park Church is available online at parkchurchdenver.org. Good morning. The scripture today will be found in Exodus chapter 19, and we will be reading verses 1 through 6. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Hope you're all doing well. My name is Gary. I'm one of the pastors here at Park Church. Um, I'm going to take a moment and pause, and uh, and we're going to pray. But as we pause, again, for me, in this season of my life, it's so easy for me to, like, pray um, without pausing to remember and to pay attention to the fact that God is with us. Um, so we're going to pause for a moment just to pay attention. The God of the universe is with us. His spirit is here. His spirit wants to speak to you today. So we're going to slow our hearts before him, uh, and then we're going to pray and ask him to do powerful work in us this morning. So let's calm our hearts before the God who is with us. Spirit, uh, would you speak peace over the chaos in our souls and in our minds even now? Where there are voices in our minds or distractions in our lives that are squeezing out um, our ability to listen to you, um, even where maybe the, the desire to study your word or to learn more might squeeze out at times, our ability to open up our hearts before you, um, would you right now, um, would you calm our hearts and awaken us to your presence? Um, we don't want to be in a hurry when it comes to your spirit, uh, when it comes to your presence, and when it comes to your voice. And so as we this morning, as we look, look at your word, would you um, empower, open our eyes to things about your voice, about your way to life, about your instructions for flourishing, about your preparation in us to be a people that can walk in your presence, that can abide in your love. So would you powerfully um, speak into our hearts and even reorient our lives around your presence today, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Um, every year, 
Every year, thousands upon thousands of people begin a Bible reading plan. And uh, they start in Genesis 1 often, and, and they kind of begin to work their way through the Bible. And every year, thousands and thousands of people get to the last half of Exodus and give up. Um, totally throw in the towel. This is the place right here. This is the place where you stop reading your Bible, most of us. Most of us, the Genesis story is full of these kind of dynamic stories that are semi-familiar. Some of them are kind of nuts. And as you read through Genesis, like you're like, man, that's familiar, that's familiar, that's crazy, that's crazy, that's familiar, that's crazy. And you get into the first half of Exodus and it kind of continues this sort of high-paced narrative that's exciting and dramatic um, and powerful and you're, and you're kind of captivated. Maybe there are moments that feel like boring because of a genealogy or something, but you just kind of push through that. And then you get to Exodus chapter 20, Exodus chapter 21, 22, really the, the rest of Exodus, with the exception of a couple chapters, and you just get lists and lists of instructions and laws and regulations and principles and, and paradigms that are supposed to shape the people of God. And it's hard because they're confusing. They feel at times random. They feel foreign. They feel archaic, maybe even barbaric at times. They feel complicated, and we often just kind of get to this place in our Bible and don't know what to do. And so I want to be honest with you. When we talked about preaching through the book of Exodus, um, I began a little over a year ago just studying and preparing, and I got really excited about the first half of Exodus. And I was like, could we just preach the first half of Exodus? And I have like this masochistic like kind of like vein in my life. And so I'm like, no, we're going to do it. It's going to be hard, and that's good for us. So here we go. Um, and over the course of studying Exodus, I've come to realize that what, what God's speaking and what God's doing and the role of the second half of Exodus in the life of the people of God is absolutely crucial. And the fact that it's foreign to us, the fact that it's difficult for us, the fact that parts of it feel unpalatable towards us or even repulsive at times, the fact that it's confusing um, all of these are reasons that the people of God had, have avoided it. And I have this kind of instinct that if there's something we're avoiding in God's word, it means we really need to slow down and pay attention. Uh, all of God's word is profitable. All of God's word is given to us for our instruction, for our flourishing, that God wants to actually shape us through every aspect of his word. And so if there are aspects of his word that for us as a culture feel like, man, we want to keep at arm's distance then maybe that's the exact area of Scripture that we need to slow down. Maybe that's an area of Scripture that's going to be pushing against some of our unhealthy cultural values, our unhealthy presuppositions, our unhealthy kind of frameworks of understanding the world. And so what I want to do this morning as we begin a series through the second half of Exodus, I just want to look at um, kind of two kind of big headings. One, why are we going to slow down and pay attention to the law? Why is the law so important in the life of a Christian? And then secondly, um, how should we be reading the law? What are some principles as we think about what it means to be the people of God? What are the principles through which we should be understanding these kinds of aspects of God's command, God's voice? And so that's what we're going to do this morning. And I don't want to say out of the gate that for me, this kind of like section of Exodus has been massive. Um, it's been life transforming in some significant ways, pushing against things that I have not adequately paid attention to in my own walk with Jesus and it's beginning to cultivate areas of life and hunger and excitement for me that are, have honestly surprised me. And so I'm hoping that God will do the same in you. And so what we're going to do this morning, uh, we're going to look first at why do we need to take time in the law? Why do we need to pay attention to God's law? Um, so what, what I want to say out of the gates is the word law can kind of be mis, uh, misguiding. 
Um, it can be unhelpful at times because when we think law, we think about the laws of the land. We think about stipulations that the government kind of puts over you to make sure everybody's doing the right thing. Really, the word law in the Bible um, is more, maybe even better translated, instruction. God's instruction. And so when people talk about the law all throughout the Old Testament, most of the time they're not just talking about the sort of list of rules that are happening in the last half of Exodus and Leviticus and some in Numbers. Most of the time they're talking about the whole story. The whole story of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Bible, what we call the Pentateuch, is all the law, the Torah, God's instruction. And the rules that are listed in there play a part in that story. And so we're going to come back to that in a moment. We're going to come back to that in a moment. But what we're looking at is the instructions of God or the design of God, the voice of God in our life through which we're supposed to find flourishing life. And so as I think about our culture as a people, um, we kind of fall into some different tendencies. And one of those tendencies is some ignorance and some apathy concerning parts of the Bible. Uh, We just don't understand them. We don't know what they're about or we don't really care that much. And so even as we come into a series like this, you're like, oh, I've never really thought about this. I've not paid too much attention. I've kind of bypassed certain aspects of the Bible. It's never really bothered me. It's never really concerned me. And I would actually say that these areas of scripture are designed by God to instruct us in his way of life, to guide us towards a flourishing life, that the law in a very real sense is designed to be God's voice towards your flourishing. Um, So Psalm 1, uh, which is a really um, foundational psalm for understanding all of the psalms, has this kind of really beautiful paradigm that it sets up. It says, blessed or happy is the one, happy is the person, the man or the woman, who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So all these other voices that are around you today, all these other voices are around you in culture, in social media, in relationships, and parents, in your family systems, in your workplaces, All of these kind of, even these subconscious frameworks that are kind of supported by our society and kind of generally agreed upon in society, these voices are not voices that are default oriented towards the instruction of God, but they're actually aimed at and geared towards leading us away to a vision of building a life without God. They are, and this is part of humanity. We'll talk about this later. And and what the Psalm 1 like um, framework is saying is that the person who's going to experience happiness and joy and flourishing is somebody who doesn't kind of walk in that way towards life, but rather his or her delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he or she meditates day and night. That person, that person's like a tree that's planted by these streams of water that's yielding fruits in all of these different seasons. And when the winds blow and when life gets hard and the cultural tides are pushing and the family's falling apart and your job is crumbling and your friendships are, are shattering or you've moved to a new city and you're having a hard time getting connected or, or you're feeling physically ill and all of these circumstantial pressures start pushing on your life, the tree that's planted by the stream of living water, the human being who delights in God's instruction and who meditates on it, chews on it, thinks about it, contemplates it, spends time wrestling with it, marinating in it, abiding in it, that person is like a tree that just continues to bear fruit and its leaves don't wither. Like stands firm in the face of all of these pressures But the one who's not paying attention to the instruction of God, not paying attention to the voice of God, they're not like that. They're not like that. They're like chaff 
Psalm 1 says. Chaff, like the, the dry kind of like um, leftovers from a harvest. These sort of like dried up leaves of grain that are worthless. And, and when they get thrown up into the air and the wind blows, they just blow away. Vanity, emptiness, nothingness. That what Psalm 1 is saying is that the person that's going to experience real joy in life, like substantial joy, deep joy, stable joy, flourishing life, is somebody who's going to meditate on the instruction of God, delight in it, love it, chew on it, live by it. And so that's, that's kind of what we're getting into as we talk about getting into this, this part of Exodus. What we're talking about is what does it mean to be people that delight in God's instruction? Now, truly, there are complicated things that we're going to have to work through as we get through it. There are disconcerting verses. Some of, them, some of them, Neil and I were talking uh, this week because he's going to be preaching a passage with some of the hardest verses in the Bible in it. I'm sorry, brother. Um, uh, <laughs> it was just like, there's some, it's, it's, it's weird. There's some hard stuff. Uh, there's some hard stuff. So we got to sort through that. How do we understand these things? Why is it hard for us? We, we got to sort through that. But at a basic level, what we're talking about is, are you a human being who pays attention to the voice of God? Are you a human being who pays attention to the voice of God? And we want to grow as people, men and women, that are paying attention to, meditating on, chewing on, and even delighting in God's instructions for life. In every civilization and every culture throughout history, spiritual forces of darkness have been set against you listening to the voice of God. From Genesis chapter 3 to today, and for the rest of human history until Jesus comes again, spiritual forces of darkness in every culture, in every age, have been set against you listening to the instruction of God. And the way that those voices work in cultures are different. And it's hard for me to not see this very kind of like blatant, profound, like painful way that spiritual forces of darkness have cultivated in especially American Christianity a basic disregard to the voice of God, not because of some kind of like explicit um, resistance to it, but just because of distraction, because of apathy, because of what some people throughout history have been calling easy believism, that essentially Christianity for many of us has become this way of understanding life where we get to kind of like come into this life We learn that we're a sinner. We hear something about this good news that Jesus died for us. And if you trust in him and pray a prayer, you get to go to heaven when you die. And so we we pray the prayer, God, I'm a sinner. I've turned from you. I need forgiveness. I trust in Jesus that he died on the cross for me and that he rose again from the dead. All of that's great and healthy. But we're like, now I get my golden ticket uh, to go to heaven when I die. And then otherwise, I'm just going to live my life in the cultural tides, listening to the voices around me and the waves and the winds of culture and my family and my family system and my neighbors and my friends. And I'm going to live my life for a different vision of flourishing life. And Jesus will have some place in it, more or less, depending on who you are. He has some place in it, but broadly, largely, we're on the same broad path that the rest of our culture is on not listening to the voice of God, not giving it a center place in our life. And that's not what Christianity is. Christianity is a vision of God's kingdom, a kingdom where God has come to rescue us from our plight, rescue us from our rebellion, rescue us from our 
bondage into these destructive systems and to bring us into a kingdom where he's restoring, where people love his presence and listen to his voice. Heed his voice, pay attention to his voice. This is massive for us. This section of Exodus, this this genre of scripture, the instructions of God, the commands of God are massive for us as a people. And if your impulse is to push away, like know that there's spiritual activity happening in your heart right now. And so what I'd encourage you is like, God, just help me to open up my heart to your voice. Help me care, help me draw near, help me pay attention and where I'm resistant. Would you, would you give me grace to stay near to your voice? Um, we are in desperate need of the law, of the instruction of God. And so we're gonna spend time in it. What I wanna do is, is unpack now some like basic understanding. It's not gonna be, part of it will feel heady, uh, parts of it will feel very practical, um, and I hope parts of it, the Spirit will be doing meaningful work in your heart. And so what I, I have just a handful of principles that I see in the Torah, in the five books of the Bible that kind of frame out this law that I think are vital for us as we dive into this series and kind of set, us, set for us a foundation. And so um, the question we're asking as we jump in um, is how do we understand the law? Okay, so um, just first out of the gate, like this, the, the Bible is not a behavioral manual. It's not. Uh, some of you grew up in cultures where you think about the Bible or you think about Christianity as a system of rules, a basic kind of code of ethics to follow, and that's not Christianity and that's not the Bible. Um, it's not a rule book. It's not a behavioral manual. It's not like guides to kind of like a lifestyle improvements. It's none of those things. Okay, maybe if you grew up, I, I grew up uh, as a little kid in a nominally Catholic home where I had an idea of rules, not much of an idea of the Bible, but an idea of rules that I needed to follow. Um, if I followed them well, God would be happy with me. If I didn't follow them well, God wouldn't be happy with me. And that was my basic framework. I then became a Christian in a kind of conservative Baptist church, which preached the gospel to me, preached the word of God to me. So thankful for it. But some of those values in, in that community um, kind of led me, not everybody. I'm so going to be charitable to that church because I'm so grateful. But in that movement, kind of this basic sense of like, okay, now I'm a Christian. Now I need to follow the rules. And even though I know I'm going to go to heaven when I die, because I prayed that prayer, God's affection for me or delight in me or approval of me or acceptance of me and the other people around me, their, their ability to receive me and to accept me into this community has some sort of contingency upon the degree to which I'm conforming to certain behavioral codes. And so I conform my life to those codes as good as I can. And I'm kind of like, you're in this like straight jacket of life, trying to be who you're supposed to be, trying to live into this idealized version of what a Christian ought to be. But deep down in my heart, there are these other fears and insecurities and shame and darkness and pride and, and things that I don't know what to do with. Because if I'm honest about that stuff, how will God feel about me? And how will my friends feel about me? How will my church feel about me? So I'm taking parts of who I am, tucking them away, sequestering them into this hidden place of my heart versus learning about the instruction of God is not designed to be this sort of bar that we're constantly judging ourselves against and actually kind of gearing our understanding of God's delight in us or our, our worthiness of love based on our adherence to some standard. And yet many people live like that and that's not, that's not the way that the Bible shows us. It shows us a much more beautiful way. So I'm going to give you, actually, this is, you might laugh because I'm not, I normally have like two points in a sermon because I still preach really long sermons. Um, got seven principles for you. Uh, seven, <laughs> oh geez, God have mercy on us. Um, 
It felt, it felt risky, but here we go. Uh, seven principles for you. I hope you're not excited about any 11 a.m. football games. Um, it is the most wonderful time of the year, by the way. Anybody? All right. It is, it is. I know that's about Christmas, but not for me. Um, principle number one is the creation principle. It's what I call the creation principle. And here's the principle. God's laws are instructions for life in his presence. God's laws are instructions for life in his presence. That's what God's law is. It's instruction for life in his presence. And I get that from Genesis 1 and 2, where you get the very first command in the Bible. The very first command in the Bible. So the whole context is God has created this flourishing world where people are supposed to just enjoy his presence and enjoy creation and enjoy one another. And there's harmony. The kind of bible word is shalom. It's things as they ought to be. It's flourishing life that you're made for, that you long for. You these echoes of it kind of bantering around in your mind and your heart all the time. Echoes of shalom, these longings. And into that place, God has said, to live in this place, you can enjoy all of these things, but you need to trust and obey my voice. And so he gives a command. And the command is, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's not an arbitrary tree. It's a tree that represents the willingness of humanity to trust in the voice of God versus our desire to take upon ourselves our own sort of like autonomous understanding of truth, our autonomous understanding of good and evil, our autonomous way of life. Will we trust in God's instructions for life to enjoy life in his presence and in harmony? Or will we take upon ourselves the mantle of the knowledge of good and evil or the ability to discern what's right for me, what's good for me, what's appropriate for me? And so Humanity from the beginning has given this instruction, trust my voice and you will have flourishing life. Trust my voice and you will have flourishing life in my presence. Really all of God's instructions are geared around helping us understand what it means to live in his holy presence, to enjoy his holy presence. And so that command comes into the garden and humanity, rather than trusting in the voice of God, our first kind of Adam and Eve and every subsequent human to follow, we've decided to take upon ourselves that prerogative to determine and forge our own way for life. We want to have authority. And so we've rejected, as humanity, we've rejected the authority of God. We've turned from the voice of God. We've listened to another voice, a spiritual voice that is always at play, that's at play right now. A spiritual force of darkness, this satanic voice that is constantly calling you to turn away from the voice of God. He's holding something back from you. He's holding something back from you. It's lie number one. Lie number two, the consequences of rebellion are not as bad as you think. You won't surely die. And what God says, when you turn from my voice, you will surely die. You'll experience separation from him. And this is the sort of root cause of all of the brokenness inside of us and outside of us as a people, in our society, in our cities, in our nation. That cause of brokenness is humanity's rebellion against the voice of God, the instruction of God. It's a creation principle. The instruction of God is good. It's given to help you enjoy life in his presence. Principle number two, I'm gonna call it the Egypt principle. The Egypt principle, and we're getting this from the very beginning, the first couple chapters of Exodus that we looked at in the fall. The Egypt principle is this. You were born into a kingdom that leads people away from God's voice. You were born into a kingdom like, I was born in America. That's not a kingdom. You were born into a system where there are authorities and powers and voices and a way of life that was set against you 
listening to the voice of God. Every society, every human created society ever has always had these powers and these temptations, spiritual powers, frameworks to keep people away from the voice of God. Those might be explicit systems of idolatry, or in our culture, it might be things like just kind of like the pathological busyness of life. Pathological busyness of life. I think I've talked about that like every time I've preached for the past several months because it's real. We are addicted to activity. We are terrified of silence. We are terrified of peace because all of the kind of internal turmoil that we feel in our failure to achieve the life we're trying to achieve, all of that internal stuff bubbles up to the surface and we calm our hearts before God. And all of a sudden, his spirit has room to to convict and to draw us back into his presence. But as a society, in our society's system, kind of frenetic rat race life that leads to burdens that are inescapable, just like these inescapable burdens in Egypt. In Egypt, there were these, this tyranny of Pharaoh, the leader of Egypt, who had this reign where he's kind of constantly leading people into this inescapable burden, giving themselves again and again and again to a kingdom that could never give them life. And we do the exact same thing. We do the exact same thing. We are giving ourselves to a system that cannot give life. The American dream cannot give life. It doesn't mean everything about it is bad. Parts of it are learning to enjoy the good gifts of God. And yet kind of our, our default principle, our default kind of like thought, even when we talk about this, like, well, okay, but it's not bad, right? And so we kind of like live in this system where we're actually addicted to this frenetic activity or in the, in the face of those pains and those sort of like kind of like under the hood kind of like rumblings, we just distract ourselves and we numb ourselves with activity, with recreation, with vacations, with trips, with Netflix, with weed, with porn, with um, any number of activities that can kind of like just keep us away from the pain of life. And it's real. And it leads to loneliness, like off the charts kind of experiences of anxiety and depression right now. Constant increases in suicidal attempts and suicides. Overwhelming sense of loneliness, darkness, Shame, feeling like we're the only one. Constant status anxiety compared to other people because it seems like other people are accomplishing the dream and we're not. And we live in this anxiety and to, and to numb ourselves to the pain, we just distract ourselves and we numb ourselves. And it's Egypt. And you're born into this system. So for God to pluck us out, to rescue us, to deliver us, actually means for us to acknowledge that the system around us is not designed for your ultimate flourishing. It's not designed for your joy. It's actually under the influence of satanic powers. Satanic powers. That to wake up to, open our eyes to, that there are forces around me leading me away from God, from his presence and his reign and his voice. So the people of Egypt, once they felt that and cried out in desperation, they began to beg God to rescue them. And God did, which brings us to our third principle. Call it the Passover principle. The Passover principle is this. That salvation by grace comes before the instructions for God's kingdom. Salvation by grace comes before the instructions for God's kingdom. So we saw this in the first half of Exodus. God didn't, when the people were crying out under this evil tyranny where they're um, just kind of slaves to these inescapable burdens, there's death and destruction all around them. They're finally like just 
overwhelmed with the weight of pain. They had come to Egypt to save them from the kind of famine of the land. And now after years, hundreds of years, they are feeling their captivity. They cry out to God for deliverance and God didn't come and say, okay, I have some laws, some rules. I'm willing to deliver you, but let's just lay some terms down first. I need you to obey these 10 commandments. Um, and they'll give you a couple years, you know, just to see how you do. And those who do better than the others, I'll rescue them. As long as you do better than your neighbor, as long as you do better than the Egyptians, as long as you do better than somebody else, then I'll rescue you. That's not what happens, right? God in his mercy comes down and he rescues them, not through their own effort, not through their own work, but through the sacrifice of a lamb. They trusted in the voice of God, the power of God to deliver them. They admitted their own captivity, their own bondage, their own inability, their own incompetence, which is this terrifying word, their inability to rescue themselves, to save themselves, to redeem themselves, to forge their own way to life. They finally acknowledged, I cannot create life in this kingdom. I need a deliverer. I need salvation. And so God provided a way of salvation. It was through the blood of a lamb. The blood of a lamb, that they trusted in the blood of the lamb. They painted the blood of the lamb over the mantle and over the doorposts of their house. And in that trust of the blood of the lamb, the judgment of God for humans' rebellion, including Israel's rebellion, including our rebellion, the judgment of God did not fall upon them because they were covered by the blood of the lamb. They didn't have to work hard to be rescued. They just had to trust in the sacrifice of the lamb. And this is true for us, that Christianity, the foundation is just saying, I can't rescue myself. I can't free myself. I can't forge my own way to life. I've tried, and not only is it not working, but it's also sin against the king of the universe. It's sin against my creator. And he said, the day you eat of the fruit of that tree, you will surely die. I'm worthy of death. And I'm going to trust that the lamb of God died for me. And that's what Jesus has done. He laid down his life for us. He shed his blood for us. He took upon himself the wrath of God that we deserve so that through his blood, through his death, we could actually be cleansed and forgiven so the spirit of God could come upon us like this new temple that hasn't cleansed itself but has been cleansed through the blood and the sacrifice of the lamb so that the spirit of God could come upon us to give us not merely salvation but access into his presence. That we as a people, as we understand like what's the place of the voice of God? It's not the way to get into his presence. The way into his presence is through the blood of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. There's no other way to joy. No other way. There's no other name, no other technique, no other opportunity. There's nothing you can do in your own strength. It's to trust in Jesus, who he is and what he's accomplished for you. Principle four. I'm going to call it the Sinai Principle. Sinai is the region that we're actually in. We're going to be kind of paying attention to for the rest of really the next, all the way through Deuteronomy. They're in Sinai. They're around Sinai. They're journeying through uh, the wilderness. But the rest of Exodus, at least, is at the foot of Mount Sinai. It's S-I-N-A-I. Got it? There's like A-I-I-A. Um, S-I-N-A-I. The Sinai Principle. Here, here's what it is. The Law of Moses, the part of the Bible we're going to be looking at, state the terms of God's covenant relationship with Israel. They state the terms of God's covenant relationship with Israel. So what, what does that mean? Because here's where it gets a little bit thinking cap. You've got to put on your thinking cap. Pay attention. This is so important to understanding the Bible. 
that the law of Moses, the instructions that God will give, beginning with the Ten Commandments, all the way through, really halfway through Leviticus, he's going to continue to give a lot of different instructions. These are given as the terms of God's covenant relationship with Israel. So God has delivered this people out of bondage. He's brought them into his presence. And what he said to them, and this is right here in Exodus chapter 19, if indeed you will listen, you will obey, you will hear and pay attention to my voice, if you will listen to my instructions, you will be my treasured possession among all the peoples of the earth, for all the earth is mine. He says, everything's mine. It's all his. If you'll listen to my voice, you will be my covenant people, my beloved, my treasure, the, the ones that I delight in and sing over. You'll experience actual relationship with the God of the universe, not just like theoretical, not just theological but actual relationship with the God of the universe. And not merely will you experience his presence and his love, but also you will participate, you'll participate in his mission to flood the whole earth with his presence. You'll be to me, for me, a kingdom of priests, the people that exist in the world to represent my glory before people and to plead with me on behalf of people, to have this mediating function in the world, showing the world about the presence of God and the character of God and the love of God and coming to God on behalf of the world. Priests in the world, people that exist to mediate, reflect, share, spread God's presence in this world. What's interesting about the law of Moses, which are the instructions that are given in this part of the Bible, is that there's a condition. If you will indeed listen to my voice, if you will. The other side of the condition is given later throughout the Pentateuch. If you won't, you'll be separated from my presence. You will go from my covenant people to not my people. If you obey, you'll experience my love and you'll reflect my glory. And if you disobey, if you not mess up once or twice, but if you reject my voice and continue to try to forge your own way, influenced by the cultures around you, you'll be separated from my presence. There's a condition. And that's why you're like, well, what about the gospel? We're almost there. <laughs> um, but this is really important because God has given Israel instructions that make sense in their culture. Some of the instructions given don't make a lot of sense in our culture. At every level, the instruction is a revolutionary push towards holiness, a revolutionary push towards human dignity, a revolutionary push towards systems of rest and peace and wholeness, a revolutionary push towards love of neighbor and love of society. In everything the Lord gives the people of Israel, he's giving to them not this kind of like, perfect way. This is what perfect humanity looks like. But he's saying, listen to my voice and I'm going to lead you towards righteousness and life. And it's not inaccessible for them. It wasn't crazy for them. It wasn't impossible. In fact, they were culturally conditioned in so many ways that they were actually accessible. He's like nudging them towards righteousness. And what we find is even in these accessible laws, Israel turned. Israel turned. So if the laws are these stipulations of this covenant relationship with God, the next principle is the golden calf principle, which is this. Your heart is bent away from God's way to life. It's bent away. It's not just unable to accomplish God's instruction. It's not just unable to do, God set the bar so high and I just can't quite get there, right? I just can't quite reach it. It's not that it's like God's law is like reachable, but we're like, pass. That when the law is given, 
the people of Israel not, not only are like unable to obey it, they turn from it. Their hearts are disinclined away from the voice of God. They're turning from the voice of God. And Paul's going to talk about this in Romans 7. When the law comes and it tells me not to covet, all of a sudden I want to covet. I didn't even want to covet until it told me not to covet, but now that it told me not to covet, I don't, now I want what you have. Which is like true of every child. It's like, don't touch that. It's like, oh, <laughs> you know, it's human nature. It is human nature. Not just an inability to reach God's standard, but a rebellion against God's way to life. And the law exists to show us the, the rebellious nature of our heart. That even when God says, here's what life in my kingdom is like, our hearts turn away again and again and again. Paul talks about it powerfully in Romans 7. The things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I do. Who's going to deliver me from this? Jesus is going to deliver us. It's only Jesus, which is the sixth principle, the Jesus principle, that the law leads us to Jesus. You see, in, in the midst of the Exodus story, the laws are given not as like, hey, everybody throughout all of history is going to need to obey all of these laws. They're given as a part of a story. And into this story, these rules come and, and kind, of, kind of sprinkled throughout the story over and over again, not just in not just in Exodus, but in Leviticus and in Numbers, every time laws are given, the author is intent on showing Israel's rebellion against them. So they're like, hey, look, God gave some laws, and look what Israel did. Turn from them to worship this golden calf. They're like, this is the God who took us out of Egypt. And you're like, Moses is like on Mount Sinai, there's this cloud and thunder, and he had rescued them with power. And they're like, it was this golden calf we just made. This calf did it. And you're like, what's wrong with you? They have a broken heart like you and me. They have a bent heart that needed healing, that needed transformation, that needed someone outside of themselves to, to kind of totally reconstruct it and make it new. And that's what the law does again and again. It actually reveals to us our wayward heart and it leads us to long for someone who can forgive us of our rebellion, who can accomplish all that we need to accomplish to have life with God and who can transform our hearts and make them new. And that's what Jesus came to do. He came to actually establish a new covenant. It's a better covenant than the covenant that God had made with Israel. It's a better covenant because it has no if clause. It has no contingencies. It has no kind of like conditions that if you'll just do this, then you can live in my presence forever. Actually, as you come to Jesus, all the if clauses were accomplished by Jesus. Jesus was faithful to the voice of God all the way to the cross. He loved God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He loved his neighbor as himself. He loved people. He laid down his life for people. He took time to pay attention to the presence of God's voice, the power of God's spirit, and he walked in God's ways, and he experienced flourishing life. You're like, wait, didn't he die on a cross? Yes. Which is the counterintuitive way of God's kingdom. That the way to glory is not up, 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 climb, climb, climb. The way of glory is down, sacrifice, humility, love, trust, surrender. And Jesus showed us the way to life. And his willingness to die on the cross, Philippians 2 says, therefore God highly exalted him and gave him the name above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Here's the king of the world. 
who sacrificed his life for us, who is totally faithful to God, and yet he died on a cross to pay the penalty, to take the death that we deserve because of our rebellion, to take that upon himself, so that through Jesus, several things are happening. He fulfills the law on our behalf. Number two, he pays our debt. Number three, he cleanses us for the presence of God. And then he gives us his Holy Spirit. He lives the life we could have never lived. He dies the death that we deserved. He cleanses us so that the Spirit of God can come upon us. And that's the final principle. It's the Spirit principle. That Jesus gives us his very own Spirit so that we can do what humans were designed to do, made for, to enjoy his presence and to walk in his ways. That because of the blood of Jesus, we're cleansed, the holy presence of God can come upon us. Again, not merely theologically, but God is with us. Because of the blood of Jesus shed 2,000 years ago, right now, in Christ, as you come to him, God is with you. Literally. The Spirit of God is with us. And the love of Christ is secured for us. And because the Spirit in us, because the presence of God in us, we now have the ability to, to trust God's ways, not perfectly, not all the time. And when we fall, it's not like, well, you failed, so now you're going to be separated from my presence. Actually, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus, in the one who accomplished all that needed to be accomplished. You're loved. Which means, as a Christian, or as someone that's turned to Jesus, to trust in Jesus, we get to experience his life, we get to walk in his love, we get to enjoy his presence, and through his own spirit, we get to experience transformation in our lives, so that we'd be a people that love God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength, and we love our neighbors as ourselves. Um, this is the way to life, and it's actually light, it's free, it's easy, it's not like this complicated thing. It's like trusting in Jesus, trusting in his patience and his mercy and in his grace. I think it's um, powerful for me to think about all that I've tried, even kind of in the name of Christianity, to do in my own strength apart from the presence of God. And it's exhausting. And it's supposed to be. That's why Jesus cries out again and again and again. If you're experiencing life as heavy, burdensome, all you who are weary, burdened, heavy laden, to use that term. Jesus is saying, come to me. Come to me. I'll give you life. I'll give you rest. I'll give your soul rest. My yoke, my way is easy. My burden is light. Why? Here's why, and this is awesome. If in the old covenant, we had conditions, like to, to live life in the presence of God. What you needed to do is you need to be obedient to the covenant of God. In the new covenant, it's the presence of God, the gracious presence of God that gives us the power to actually live into and listen to his voice. And it's beautiful because you can be imperfect, you can be weak, you can be tired, and you're still loved. And this is the beauty of the gospel. So as people, what we're looking at this fall is not kind of like more rules to burden you. We want to be a people that just enjoy the presence of God. And in his presence, there's fullness of joy. 
At his right hand, there are pleasures forever. And in that place, we learn to listen to his voice, to love his voice, to delight in the law of the Lord and to meditate on it day and night. Let's pray. Um, Jesus, we, uh, we need you even now. Even to be attentive to your presence is uh, hard for us. Our minds begin to get distracted so quickly. And so, Spirit, we confess our need for you. I pray that you'd help us to be a people that abide in your love, that learn to slow down, to take the burdens of life and to come to you and to come under your way, this way that's marked by love and peace and rest. So would you give us joy in your presence and would you help us to be attentive to your voice? In Christ's name we pray, amen.